as it pertains to God's plan of redemption, I think this text here uh, sets us on the right trajectory. It, it sets the stage for the rest of the story of, of Scripture. It is certainly uh, one of the most important texts in the book of Genesis for understanding the message of this particular book. Uh, Genesis 12, 1-9, but particularly the first three verses of this passage. Let's give ourselves now to the reading of God's most holy word. First Genesis 12, 1-9, uh, and then after that, Galatians 3, verses 1-9. through nine. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going to the Negeb, which is the southern part there of the land of Canaan. Let us go now to Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, where... Uh, Paul uh, handles this text that we have just read in Genesis and rightly interprets it for us and applies it even to the New Covenant Christian. Paul is writing to the churches in the region of Galatia, and he is deeply concerned for them. They are a troubled people. They are troubled churches. They are being threatened by heresy, and therefore he begins with this stern word saying, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Which was it, Galatians? Was it by the works of the law that you received the Spirit or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham, that is Abram, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So far the reading of God's most holy word. We pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of the word this morning. I think you would all agree with me that the most famous verse, at least in our day and age, in the whole Bible is John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world 
that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And it is no wonder that uh, this verse is so well known and so greatly loved, for it is a marvelous little summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a succinct presentation of the fabulous news that although the world is sinful and corrupt and rebellious towards God, God has shown love to the world. And how has He loved the world, we might ask? It is not that He has an affection for the sinful world, for how could He have an affection for uh, this world as corrupt as it is? But God loved the world by doing something gracious, merciful, and kind. Uh, Specifically, God gave His only Son. And there is an awful lot packed into that little phrase, He gave His only Son. In brief, it means that God the Father gave Jesus the Christ, who was and is the eternal Son of God come in the flesh, over to death, not to mention all of the other pains and miseries of this life. And why did He do that? Why did He give His only Son in this way? John 3.16 is very clear. He says that He did it so that whoever believes, that is, trusts in Him, should not perish but have eternal life. The Son was sent by the Father to die for the world. He died and rose again for a fallen and sinful world. He died and rose again for the whole world. And by that, the Scriptures mean not for the Jewish race only, but for sinful and rebellious people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. He died for all who would believe upon His name, for Jewish people and for Gentile people, for black people and brown people and white people. He died for males and females, rich and poor, young and old. Jesus died and rose again, not for a particular race, gender, type, or class of person, but for the world. He is the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Careful reading of the New Testament Scriptures reveals that the apostles of Christ, those who were sent by Christ, who were all Jews by race, remember, that they initially struggled and but ultimately marveled and rejoiced over the fact that Christ was the Savior, not only of the Jewish people, but also of the Gentiles. Evidence for this initial struggle, but ultimate joy, is found all over the pages of the New Testament. Are you following with me? What, what am I talking about here? They struggled to understand this, that this Jesus, the Christ, this Messiah, was not just the Jewish Messiah, but He was the Christ who came to atone for the sins of the world. And I think their initial struggle is somewhat understandable. I want you to think of it for a moment. From the call of Abram, who would later become Abraham, in approximately 2000 B.C., 2000 years prior to the birth of Christ, all the way to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the kingdom of God was confined to the Jewish people. The Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jews, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were for that time set apart in the world as distinct from the nations. This lasted for about 2,000 years. They were God's elect people according to the flesh. To them belonged the covenants and the promises. The law of Moses was imposed upon them. Through them the Christ would eventually come from Abraham to the resurrection of Christ One race from among the children of Adam was set apart as unique. But when Christ finally emerged from amongst the Hebrew people, what did He say? He said things like this, I am the good shepherd, 
I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay my life down for these ones. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. John 10, 14 through 16. What is Christ saying here? When Christ spoke of having other sheep that are not of this fold, He was revealing to His disciples, who were all Jews according to the flesh, that the Father had given Him people from amongst the Gentiles too, and not people from amongst the Jews only. This was quite a jarring statement. The disciples, I think, struggled to understand this. The Messiah would be the Jewish Messiah, right? Well, no, in fact, he would be a Jewish Messiah. He would emerge from the Jews, but he would be the Messiah, the way, the truth, and the life for all the peoples of the earth. And, and what did Christ say after he rose from the dead? Did he not most clearly command his apostles, who were all Jews by race, saying, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And remember that immediately before his ascension, he spoke to them again, saying, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, and Samaria, and in fact, to the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. And so, brothers and sisters, I want for you to understand that this was a massive shift. You and I probably don't feel it so much, for when we look back upon the past 2,000 years of our history, what do we see? We, we see 2,000 years of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God going to the nations. By now, it is familiar to us. We are 2,000 years removed from this transition, though, from the old covenant to the new. But I'd like for you to try to put yourself there. Or try to imagine being a Hebrew in those days. Remember that when they looked back upon the previous 2,000 years of their history, what did they see? They saw the kingdom of God, the covenants and promises of God being confined to their people. You and I see something different when we look upon the 2,000 years of our history. They saw the kingdom of God confined to the borders of Israel, though we are now accustomed to see it advance to the very farthest places of the earth. As I say this, uh, Paul's words concerning the Hebrew people come to mind. He spoke concerning this in Romans 9.1 with these words, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish, anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, my heart breaks for the fact that so many of my kinsmen, according to the flesh, my Jewish brethren, have rejected Jesus as the Christ. And if it were possible, I would be willing to be myself cut off to see them brought in to have faith in Jesus as the Christ. But then he goes on to say, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship. And the promises, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This is a wonderful summary of all that was given to the Hebrew people from Abraham to Christ. Adoption, glory, covenants, the law, the worship, and the promises, to them belong the patriarchs, from their race, according to the flesh, came the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This is a wonderful summary. Those people were set apart as unique under the old covenant, from Abraham to Christ. But when the Christ came, what did we hear concerning him? 
John the Baptist was the first to introduce him. And what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What an announcement. The book of Acts, which is about the Acts of the Apostles of Jesus Christ, shows us that the Apostles did eventually get it. They came to understand that God the Father's love was for the world and not for the Israelite nation only. They went to the Gentiles with the gospel of Jesus the Christ, and they were amazed at the response as the Spirit worked amongst them, just as He worked amongst the first to have faith in Christ, who were Jews according to the flesh. It's a major theme in the book of Acts. They did go to the Gentiles, and God worked mightily amongst them. The letters of Paul, the other apostles, also prove that they got it. For it is in the letters to the churches that this theology of God's law for love for the nation, the nations, is worked out. Take, for example, Paul's words to the Christians in Ephesus, who were mainly Gentiles by race, mind you. Listen carefully to Paul's words to them. He says to these Gentile converts, these Gentile Christians who place their faith in Christ, he says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. He's referring to the time prior to Christ's birth, His life, death, burial, and resurrection. You at that time as Gentiles were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one. He is referring to Jews and Gentiles. He has made us both one, and He has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandment commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Isn't this beautiful? You see Paul, the the Jewish man, saying to his Gentile brothers now, we used to be separate, but now we have been made one in Christ Jesus. And this is because he, Christ, came and preached peace to you who were once far off, and peace to those who were near, both Jew and Gentile. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is rich teaching here. This shows us that the apostles uh, definitely got it. These are beautiful words. They prove that the apostles of Christ got the message, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And this is why Paul also said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek But here is the question that I have. Was this idea that God's love is for the whole world a new one in the days of Jesus? Was it a new idea? Was this message that God would provide salvation for all nations a novel concept invented by Christ and His apostles? Some would say yes. 
And again, it's not hard to understand why would some, some would have this view, for it is true that the apostles of Christ, who were Jews who knew the Old Testament Scriptures well, struggled to understand this at first. And it is also true that the vast majority of the Old Testament Scriptures were written by and about Hebrew people. Sometime, take your Bibles, uh, you don't have to do it with me now, uh, but take your Bibles and put your thumb there at Genesis chapter 12. And then take your, uh, your, your pointer finger and, and open up to the very first page of the New Testament and just pinch it between your fingers. Do you see how much of the scriptures have to do with the Jewish people? Uh, written by the Jewish people, having to do with their history, having to do with God's activity amongst them? It's no wonder that some assume that God's plan from the beginning was to save the Jews and that He had a plan B. Things changed, I guess. A novel concept uh, came up uh, when Christ finally came. It's not difficult to understand uh, why some would think this. And it's also true that Paul the Apostle referred to this truth that the Gentiles would be reconciled to God through faith in the Messiah as mysterious. He actually refers to this as a mystery. Listen again to Paul in Ephesians 3.1 where he says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of the grace of God that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. He says some mystery has been made known to him by revelation. What is he talking about here? Well, he goes on to explain. He says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been made known or revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So Paul admits that there is something mysterious about this fact, that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs along with the Jews. It was mysterious in previous generations. It was not made known to them prior to the coming of Christ in the same way, to the same degree that it has been made known to us now under the new covenant. Paul called the fact that the Gentiles would be made fellow heirs along with Jews a mystery, but when he called it a mystery, he did not mean that this truth was nowhere to be found, that it was absent or lacking in previous generations altogether. Instead, he meant that it was less clear Listen again carefully to his words. When you, receive, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Holy Spirit. What was once mysterious is now very clear. Now that the Christ has come, what was once mysterious is now very clear now that the Holy Spirit has been poured out. What was once dimly revealed, what was once relatively hard to see and to understand under the Old Covenant and in, and in the Old Testament Scriptures has now been made abundantly plain and clear now that the Christ has come and the Spirit has been poured out. Our family planted a small garden a few months back. Kale, spinach, lettuce, chard, mainly those things. And I'm really glad that uh, the seeds came packaged with labels. Have you ever looked at these seeds and compared them one to another, they look pretty similar. To me, they just all look like little grains of dirt or something, little grains of sand. Some of them are that small. I'm sure it's possible, but I would have had a very difficult time knowing what was what by looking at the seeds. 
knowing what was what would have been a mystery to me, were not the seeds labeled. And then when we put the seeds into the ground, we put little stakes at the start of each row, and we had the name of the crop written on those stakes, and I'm glad that we did that too. Uh, When those little plants finally began to sprout, it was still difficult to tell which was which. They all kind of looked similar. I'm sure that I could have figured it out by doing some research, by getting down on my hands and knees and examining the plants closely. Uh, For indeed, kale seeds do look like kale seeds, and kale sprouts do look like kale sprouts. But in general, those sprouts, to me, from a distance, all looked the same. Their identity would have been a mystery to me were it not for the labels. But when those plants were full grown, I knew what they were. The kale was always kale. It was either kale seed, a kale sprout, or a fully grown kale plant. But from my perspective, the kale was mysterious to me while it was in its developmental stages. And so it is with God's plan of redemption. His plan has never changed, brothers and sisters. It was the same plan from beginning to end, indeed from all eternity. But it came to maturity over time and in stages. That God's plan was to save a people for Himself from every tongue, tribe, and nation was mysterious at first. But the plan was there from the beginning. And that plan is easy to see now that the Christ has come. I think this is what Paul is referring to in his letter to the church in Ephesus. And here is what I would like for you to understand today as we consider now Genesis 12, verses 1 through 9. This wonderful news that God so loved the world was not brand new when John the Apostle penned those words nearly 2,000 years ago. This good news that God would love the world, that His plan was to save a people for Himself from every tongue, tribe, and nation, was not a novel idea that broke onto the scene when Jesus was born, but far from it, though mysterious and less clear at first, the good news of the Father's love for the world is older than Abraham. It is indeed as old as Adam. It is indeed as old as eternity, in fact, as this plan existed within the mind of God in eternity past before the heavens and the earth were even formed. Let us now consider Genesis 12, 1 through 9 in three parts. First, the call of Abram. Second, the promise of God to Abram. And third, the faith of Abram. In verse 1, we hear God's call to Abram. There we read, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. This is God's call to Abram. I think one question we should ask is, of all the people living on earth, why did God call Abram? Why did he choose him? There were many people on the earth in those days. Why did God call specifically Abram? I think many assume it was because Abram was a good and godly man. Many assume that God called Abram because he looked down from heaven and saw that Abram was upright, moral, and filled with faith more than any other person on the planet. But hear me now, brothers and sisters, the fact is this, the scriptures point in a different direction. As we will see in the weeks to come, uh, the narrative of Genesis will emphasize Abram's flaws Uh, Were there things about Abram to be admired by us? The answer is yes, of course there were. But the story of Genesis seems to draw attention to his shortcomings and his sins more than his strengths and successes. This is a really strange way to write history, by the way. Most people, most 
people groups, when they write about their history, they tend to emphasize the good parts of it, the strengths, the, 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 the courage, the success of their, their forefathers. But instead, the scriptures seem to do the opposite with Abram. It's his shortcomings and sins that are emphasized more than his strengths and successes. And this theme goes beyond the pages of Genesis, mind you. Joshua, who was Moses' successor and the one who led the people of Israel into the land of promise, he spoke to the people of Israel in this way concerning their forefathers. He looks at Israel and he says, let me tell you something about your ancestors. Let me tell you something about uh, your your forefathers, your, your genealogy. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor. Do you remember hearing about them in previous sermons? And here is what Joshua notes about them. And they served other gods. He says, let me tell you something about them. They were idolaters. They engaged in pagan worship. They were in darkness, hopelessly lost. Let me remind you, Israel, here is your heritage. Your forefathers lived in a foreign land and they worshipped foreign gods, which were no gods at all. God called Abram out of this environment by His grace and by His mercy. Why would Joshua emphasize that Israel's ancestors were idolaters? And why would the Genesis narrative draw attention to Abram's flaws? I ask you this, is it not to demonstrate that Abram and all of Israel, for that matter, were called by the grace of God and not because of their own merit. The Apostle Paul emphasizes the same thing as it pertains to the new covenant people of God when he says, Brothers and sisters, God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is a theme of Scripture from beginning to end. Has God called you? Well then, think clearly about that, friend. He has called you not because of some merit within you, not not because of of, of some superiority within you, not because of some goodness in, in you, but by His grace and His grace alone, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. When God called Abram, it was not because he was worthy. Instead, it was because God was gracious. And what did God call Abram to do? He spoke to Abram saying, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Nothing at all is said concerning the mode of this revelation. Did, God, did, did Abram hear God's voice? Did he dream a dream? Did he see a vision? The text simply does not tell us. But the call was clear. He said to Abram, get up and leave your country. Leave your people. Leave your father's house and sojourn to a land that I will show you in the future. And remember, what did Abram do except he arose there and even his father Terah led the way. They went up to Haran in the north before eventually sojourning without his father down into the south again into Canaan, which is modern day Israel. This is quite a a call, isn't it? Uh, To obey would require great faith. And this is what the writer to the Hebrews emphasizes when he says these words, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. 
By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This is an interesting little statement, by the way. Uh, The writer to the Hebrews uh, makes it very clear that Abraham, when he heard the promises of God, he understood that they had to do with more than just a sliver of land in Palestine. But actually he knew that beyond that, this promise pertained to a city whose designer and builder is God. What, What is this a reference to except the new heavens and new earth? Abraham understood this, the writer to the Hebrews says. In verses 1 through 3, we see that Abram was not called to walk blindly into the unknown, but he was also given promises. Uh, He was given the promises of God. And so now let us consider the promises of God made to Abram in verses 1 through 3. He has been called to leave his homeland and to go to a land that will be shown to him, but he is given something. Uh, He is not just told to go, but God gives him promises. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. There's a promise there. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Did you hear the promises of God given to Abram in this text that would Uh, move him to to, to obey. Uh, God promised to give him three things. One, God promised to give Abram land. Go to the land that I will show you, God said. Also, the Lord promised to make Abram into a great nation. To be a nation, one must have land. And so, God promised to give Abram land. Go away from this land, your homeland, to another one, and I will show it to you, and I will... Give it to you as I make you into a great nation. Two, the Lord promised to give Abram people. The one man, Abram, would become a great nation. To be a great nation obviously requires land and also people. But do not forget what we have already been told concerning Abram's wife, Sarai. What do we know about her? She was barren. And so already there are two problems. Abram doesn't have land. And really, when it comes to his descendants, things are looking pretty bleak, for Sarai has already proven to be barren. They are advanced in years. Thirdly, the Lord promised to bless Abraham, or Abram, and all of the nations of the earth through him. Specifically, the Lord said, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." The Lord promised to bless Abram and to make his name great, but notice that it was so that he would be a blessing. Do you see that there in the text? The Lord determined to bless Abram, not for the sake of blessing Abram only, and not even for the sake of blessing his descendants, but so that he also would be a blessing to others. From the very beginning, this this purpose is communicated in the promises of God. The Lord promised to bless those who bless Abram and to curse those who dishonor him. Uh, This will indeed play out in the narrative of Genesis. Those who are kind to Abram, who bless his name, are indeed blessed, whereas those who do wrong to Abram, who dishonor him, are cursed. 
This will also play out in the rest of the narrative of the Old Testament. Those who bless Israel, that is the descendants of Abram according to the flesh, are blessed, whereas those who do wrong to Israel are cursed. But I want you to recognize this, that Paul makes it abundantly clear that ultimately to bless Abram means to have the faith of Abram. All who have the faith of Abram are the true children of Abraham. They, along with him, are justified by faith, Paul says. There is no higher blessing than to have one's sins pardoned, to be adopted as a child of God, and to be reconciled to him through faith in the Christ. And so here again, the words of the Apostle, as he interprets this very passage that we are considering in Genesis 12, he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, there is that mystery we were talking about earlier, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, Paul says, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The Lord promised to bless those who bless Abram and to curse those who dishonor him. And the Lord also plainly declared that the purpose for calling Abram, listen carefully here, brothers and sisters, the purpose for calling Abram and blessing him so richly was so that all the families of the earth would be blessed in him. And this is why I have said that the good news that God's love is for the world is not new news, but very old news. This good news was preached even to Abram who lived 2,000 years prior to the birth of Christ. It can even be argued that this good news was preached first to Adam and also to Seth and Noah and Shem and Eber and Peleg and Terah and finally Abraham. This good news that the Messiah would come from the Hebrews to be the Savior of the world was there from the beginning. It was always there but has now been made plain. Before we move on to consider the response of Abram to this call, it must be emphasized that these words from God to Abram were promises and not stipulations. This is an incredibly important thing to recognize. These words spoken from God to Abram at the start were promises from God, and they were not stipulations. Did you notice the repetition of the words, I will? in that passage that we have just read. I will, I will, I will, God says. Go to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. These are promises and not stipulations. Put differently, this is gospel, and it is not law. Law sounds like this, do this and you will live. That is what law sounds like. Law sounds like this, if you do such and such, then I will do this and that. That is what law sounds like. Indeed, there is law in the Old Covenant, especially in the law of Moses. But this is not law. This is gospel. These are not stipulations. These are just promises. God is saying, I am going to do this. It doesn't matter what you do, Abram. Now, of course, faith was required, as it is for us. But this is just pure promise. I am going to do this thing, God says. The blessings 
of the law are obtained through obedience. But the blessings of the gospel can only be received by what? By faith, by belief, by trusting in the promises that have been made. And again, Paul makes much of this fact. He makes much of the fact that the very first words spoken to Abram were gospel and not law. It's very important to Paul and it ought to be very important to us for it shapes our understanding of the Christian faith. The very first words spoken to Abram were promises without stipulations. Paul makes much of this both in Romans and in Galatians. Read it for yourself sometime. In order to prove that salvation has never been obtainable through the keeping of the law for mere men. Never, but only through faith in the promises of God. For even Abram, the father of the Hebrew people, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Those are the words of the apostle. And what does he base that comment off of except this text that we are considering today? Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. The promises of God are found there. And what did Abram do? He simply believed. And we know that the fact of that the, the, the faith itself also is a gift of God. Uh, brothers and sisters, to pursue right standing before God through obedience to the law of God is futile. No one except Christ Himself can do it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we hope to be justified, if we hope to be declared not guilty and cleansed of all of our sins, it must be received by faith alone. In Christ alone. This is how it has always been. Lastly and very briefly, let us consider the faith of Abram. We have considered his call. We have considered the promises of God given to him. And now let us consider the faith of Abram. In verse 4 we read, So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan, they are journeying from the north to the south. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev, that is further to the south. Much of what is said here concerning Abraham's faith and his obedience is self-explanatory. The details concerning who traveled with Abram, his age, and their their destination, uh, it sets the stage for the narrative that will follow. But I want you to consider three things about this account of Abram's faith and obedience. First of all, notice the phrase, at that time the Canaanites were in the land. Did you hear that little remark? I think this is a very important statement given the promise that God had given to him. God promised to give him this land, but as he enters into that land, he notices there is a problem. Uh, The Canaanites were there. This little statement should also remind the reader of the blessings and curse pronounced upon the sons of Noah, Shem, the father of Abram. And Japheth were blessed, whereas Canaan, the son of Ham, was cursed. Remember that and keep it in mind, for it will 
again, play out in the rest of the narrative. But this little phrase here is important, for it shows that there is a problem that God Himself must overcome. Sarai is barren, and the land is filled with Canaanites. How will this work? Well, we'll learn that in months to come. Two, notice that the Lord appeared again to Abram and repeated His promise concerning the land and offspring. Verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. God was gracious to Abram as He is to us. Not only did He give Abram His word of promise at the start, but He was kind and faithful to remind Abram of His promises as He sojourned. Three, notice the response of Abram was to engage in public worship. Verse 7, the second part of it says, So Abram built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And again in verse 8, From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So we see a theme beginning to emerge. Uh, These people set apart by God, called out of the world, engaged in worship. They were people who met and gathered at the altar. This was true of Abel. This was true of the descendants of of Seth. This was true of all in that line. They were people who engaged in public worship, who took upon themselves the name of the Lord, who worshiped God in public. Abram continues this tradition, this theme. He worshiped there at the altar. Now, to call upon the name of the Lord is to worship God and to express faith in Him and His promises. Abram built these altars in public. This he did in places, note, associated with pagan worship. At Shechem, the Oak of Morah, this was probably a religiously significant place for the Canaanites. Can you imagine, therefore, Abram journeying into this land and right there at this religiously significant place, this place where oracles were declared to the Canaanites? He erects an altar and says, We are going to worship the God of heaven here in this place, publicly and in the open, in plain view. Abram built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Let me now make a few suggestions for application as we conclude. That map is up there and it was uh, not in a very good place in my notes, I notice. Probably should have been a little bit earlier to show you the journey of Abraham so we can move on from it. But let me now make a few suggestions for application as we conclude. Again, I will simply urge you to stand in awe of the grace of God and His faithfulness to bring about His promises that were uttered long, long ago. These promises to bless Abram and to bless the nations of the earth through him were made some 4,000 years ago. And yet here we are today, all of us, as far as I know, Gentiles, according to the flesh. We are non-Jewish, I think. We are children of Abram, though, by faith. And according to the Spirit. Indeed, we call Abram blessed, don't we? When we look back upon Abram, who will later become Abraham, we will say that man was blessed of God. And we bless his name. And when we say that, what are we saying? We share the same faith that he himself had. He received the promises of God concerning a coming Messiah. And he believed upon them. He looked forward to a city, not an earthly city, but one who has foundations, whose builder is God. He looked forward to that just as we do. 
we share Abram's faith, we call him blessed. It's an amazing thing to consider it. Do you ever take time just to look at the masses of people on this planet? Am I the only one? I, I hate shopping, but I'll go to the mall and I'll just watch people. I don't know. I'll go up and maybe a high place and just marvel at how many people fill even just this little valley. Flying over the country is a marvelous thing. Actually looking down upon all the cities, if it's clear at least, you can see just so many people in this country, so many people on this planet. And to think of all of that in terms of God's plan of redemption is is just a marvelous thing to consider. That, That from the beginning of time, this was God's plan and He has declared His promises to man, even beginning with Adam, reiterating them more clearly to Abram. And He has been faithful to bring them about to where here we are living in the year 2019 and we have the faith of Abram. We are worshiping the God of heaven and of earth. We have been reconciled to Him through the Christ, through faith in His name. It's a marvelous thing to consider. We should stand in awe of it. Secondly, I will ask you this. Have you been called by God? I assume the answer to that question for most of you in this room is yes. I've been called by God to have faith in Christ and to walk with Him in this world. Abram was called in a special way. The Lord appeared to him and called him to leave his land and to sojourn to another one. But you and I, if we are in Christ, have also been called by God. He has called us not by appearing to us in some vision or dream, but by His Word and by His Spirit. And we too have been called to leave something We have been called to leave the world behind, to leave our sins behind, along with every other attachment that would take the place of God in our hearts. Have you been called by God? And have you answered that call? Have you come out from the world and renounced all of the honors and pleasures of this life as rubbish in comparison to the surpassing worth of having Christ as Lord? And not only have we been called to leave something, that is to sojourn towards something else, in Christ we are to pursue the glory of God in all things. We are to live not for this world, but for the world to come. We are to leave behind the world and all of its sinful attachments, and we are to sojourn towards the world to come. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. These are the words of Christ Himself, Matthew six nineteen through 21 Have you been called by God? And are you faithful, therefore, to, to sojourn with Him in this world as His child? And thirdly, I ask you this. Are you walking as Abraham walked at first, that is, by faith and not by sight? If Abram would have acted according to what he saw... With his natural eyes, he would have never left Ur. Maybe he would have made it as far as Haran, but that was still within his country. There, those same gods that his forefathers once worshipped were worshipped in that place. He certainly would have never left Haran if he were walking according to what he saw with his natural eyes. And even after coming into Canaan, Abram would have certainly turned back if he were living his life based upon what he saw with his natural eyes. God's promise was that he would have many descendants with the, uh, with the land of Canaan as their own, but when he looked at his wife, he saw a woman well advanced in years who was barren, and when he looked at the land around him, he saw that it was filled with Canaanites. 
But Abraham is here seen walking by faith and not by sight. He is here living his life based not upon what he sees with his natural eyes, but he is living his life based upon what he sees with the eyes of faith. Abram believed in the promises of God and therefore lived accordingly. And brothers and sisters, may we be found living every moment of our lives trusting in the promises of God's most holy word. May we live not according to what we see, but according to what we know to be true, according to God, as He has revealed it in His Word. Let us bow together for prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we are grateful that You are merciful, gracious, and kind, and that though we have sinned against You, You, by Your grace and mercy, have determined to save a great multitude for Yourself from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And certainly we here uh, worshiping in this place and at this time are the result of that promise that the nations would be blessed in Abram. And so, God, we rejoice in these things. We are grateful, Lord, and we are asking that you would help us as your people to live as we ought to live in this world. May we be faithful to live in obedience to you always. May we be faithful to gather together for corporate and public worship regularly, Lord's day by Lord's day, as you have commanded us. Uh, Father, may we be consistent to walk in this world by faith and not by sight. Lord, I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, as we struggle in many ways to do these very things, that you would strengthen us by your word and by your spirit. God, we love you. We thank you that you have loved the world in this way. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.